From July of 1974 until his capture four months later, an attractive man, by all accounts, went on a killing spree. Officially, 20 victims have him to blame for their demise. Unofficially, well, the count could be much higher. He traveled over 20,000 miles in four months, stopping, murdering, and driving through 25 states, all with a smile on his charming face. This is the story of Paul John Knowles, the Casanova Killer. Hey, y'all, I'm Chris Calvert. And I'm her husband, Rob Potter. Welcome to Hitch to Homicide. For better or worse. Till death do us part. back everybody yes welcome 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 and for our japanese friends over there in japan which i do have some friends over there ohio gazamas there you go (laughs) (laughs) well wherever you're listening be sure to like rate and review the podcast which you can find on any podcast platform yeah and if you're watching us on youtube hit that subscribe button below yep and if you're new here Welcome. Yes. And if you'd like to join our closed Facebook group, The In-Laws and Outlaws. Which is a fun group. Which is a lot of fun. (laughs) Go to Facebook and type in H2H In-Laws and Outlaws, answer a couple questions, and you are in. Yes. So today, honey, we're talking about a fellow redhead. Hey, look at that. And he's a criminal. Oh, he's so much more than just a criminal. He has a bad temper. (laughs) <laughs> I did some digging on redhead facts, yeah. fictions, and myths. Okay. Historically, right. prejudice and suspicion has always greeted the redhead. Gee, I would have never known that growing <laughs> up a redhead. Along with the belief that they were fiery and hot-tempered. Mm-hmm. I think that one's true. <laughs> that one is true. I used to have a terrible temper tantrum. Used to. Well, it takes a lot for me to set me off, though. Ah, uh, and when it when the red hair catches, <laughs> look out. Yeah, there's an on and an off switch. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Greeks believed that redheads would turn into vampires following their death. Oh. Aristotle, the philosopher, the student of Plato, teacher of Alexander the Great, an all-around smart guy, he thought that redheads were emotionally unhousebroken. <laughs> well, all you have to do is smack me on the nose with a newspaper and tell me not to pee in the I carpet. knew you were going to say that. <laughs> During the Spanish Inquisition, flame-colored hair was evidence that its owner had stolen the fire of hell and had to be burned as a witch. Wow. In Corsica, if you pass a redhead in the street, you should spit and turn around. <laughs> oh, Well, I was an exchange student in South America when I was in high school, and I had a guy spit at me. There you go. There you go. That explains a lot. It explains so much. And Russian tradition declares that red hair is both a sign of a fiery temper and craziness. (laughs) There was a proverb that warns, quote, there was never a saint with red hair. (laughs) Uh, I'm just saying. Yeah. But Uh, did you know that the Nazis actually discussed whether red-haired people should be allowed to wed Really? They were afraid of their degenerate offspring. Well, we do have every recessive gene known to man, so. Also, researchers at the University of Louisville said that on average, people born with red hair require 20% more anesthesia Mm -hmm. to get them to sleep. Yeah. And I'll leave you with this quote. Quote, blondes are noticed, but redheads are never forgotten. (laughs) And our subject today, Paul John Knowles, will never be forgotten. Oh, here we go. A fellow redhead. Okay. Before we get started, let me thank some sources. Murderpedia, Crime Library, FBI.gov, All That's Interesting, The Charlie Project, Wikipedia, Channel 11 Alive, Serial Killer Documentary, Meet the Casanova Killer, More Brutal Than Bundy, 
The Atlanta Constitution, the Zanesville Times Recorder, the Reno Gazette Journal, the Seguin Gazette, the Anniston Star, the Bridgeport Telegram, the Macon News, and the Big Book of Serial Killers. There is a book by journalist Sandy Fox, Killing Time. I did not read it, but I will put a link to it and all the other sources in the show notes. All right. Well, before my hair catches on fire, you ready to go? I am. All right. Let's do it. Paul John Knowles is born on April 17, 1946 in Orlando, Florida. His parents are Thomas Jefferson Knowles and Bonnie Strickland Knowles. Paul John has two older brothers and sisters. His early years are pretty sketchy. What we do know is that he was beaten and physically abused by his father when he's a little kid. Wow. He's going to be in and out of foster homes. By the time he's eight, he's committing petty crimes. He's sent to reformatory school. And then his dad is convicted of some sort of minor crime, but he gives up his rights as a parent and allows the state to take care of Paul John. Really? I don't know what happened to his mother, but I do know that she died in 2014. Mm. Paul John's father died in 1989. But Paul John is in and out of foster care and reformatories. He sometimes found work as a welder during his times of freedom. Okay. His crimes were mostly burglary and stealing cars. But Paul John, by many accounts, was handsome. Hmm. He was tall, he was thin, and he had red hair with a devil-may-care attitude that apparently made him a pretty cool dude. Okay. He was appealing. He was charming. And by the time Paul John is 19, he's arrested and incarcerated for kidnapping a police officer when he's stopped for a traffic violation. What? Yeah. Jeez. Okay. So he's 19, and he has had an 11-year history of crime. Okay. When he's incarcerated at the Rayford Penitentiary, he meets Angela Kovic, a woman who's unhappy in her marriage with three children living in San Francisco. Okay. It's 1972, and these two meet via a magazine called American Astrology. Hmm. They become pen pals. This is kind of a thing still, women writing to incarcerated men in prison. Yeah. But these two become pen pals. Angela's having a tough time in her marriage, and their letters quickly became romantic. He's telling her he will be a wonderful lover to her, and where her husband is lacking, he will be more than enough (laughs) to make her happy. All right. These two get engaged after she flies to Florida to see him. And he immediately asks her to marry him right on the spot. Hmm. He tells her he's in prison for a drug transaction. He's really serving three years for burglary. He called her his angel, and he thinks she is his salvation. Okay. Now, they're both into tarot card readings and psychics, and she actually consults a psychic who tells her, to help him get out of prison. Hmm. And Angela does. Through friends, she met an attorney named Sheldon Yavitz, a protege of famed New York attorney Ellis Rubin, and he worked with her to get Paul John paroled. Okay. From what I could gather from the sources, Angela's mother paid the bill to Sheldon, and he managed to find a technical difficulty with the case, so it wasn't long before Paul John Knowles was paroled. And in May of 1974, Paul John is set free. He flies directly to California. She'd send him a ticket. Mm. Before his release, this same psychic tells Angela that she's got a dangerous man in her life. But somehow Angela didn't think the dangerous man was the guy she just helped to get out of prison. (laughs) Prison. (laughs) Yeah. She set up employment opportunities for Paul John, and she even paid for him to fly from Florida to San Francisco, just like I said. Right. She's footing the bill for everything. But as soon as he arrived, Angela had an uneasy feeling about him. Hmm. But she decides she's going to give it a chance, and she let him hang out with her and the kids for four days. (laughs) Now... All I could think about was she has this uneasy feeling. Is it because there's no longer plexiglass in between you or what was it? Yeah. He wasn't showing any interest in the job that she had lined up for him. And suddenly 
with Paul John out of prison, this thought about a dangerous man is in her head, and she thinks, this all feels wrong. Yeah. It's at this point she's thinking, my husband, my former husband, is looking pretty good. He's looking better and better. Right. So the fantasy of him was way different than the reality mm-hmm. of Paul John. Sure. And after a few days, she puts Paul John back on a plane and started working on getting her marriage back on track. Really? Yes. How did that make him feel? Well, that seems to be what kicks off all of this. Gotcha. Paul John would continue to send her notes and call her from time to time, but Angela was done with him. Paul John projected a, quote, aura of fear that terrified this psychic. Hmm. She's not wrong. Paul John didn't take the breakup well, just as you had said, at all. And although it's never been verified, Paul John has said he murdered three people on the streets of San Francisco that very night. Really? Now, this has never been verified, but based on what's about to happen, there are lots of folks who think it's entirely possible that he did this. So it was just out of rage? Out of rage. Wow. He flies home to Jacksonville, Florida. It's July 1974, and Paul John is out drinking, gets in a bar fight, and stabs a bartender. Hmm. He's arrested, but he picks the lock on his detention cell and escapes. Jeez. Okay. That's called foreshadowing. Uh-oh. Exactly. <laughs> now, when he does escape... Paul John begins a four-month murder and crime spree. Most of what the public knows of these crimes is from Paul John himself. He confessed on tapes, tapes that were only heard by a judge and a Georgia grand jury. Mm. Now, I did read that some of the transcripts have been leaked since then, but never publicly has any of that been heard Gotcha. by anybody except for the judge and the grand jury. And the grand jury. Okay. Now, the night he escapes... July 26, 1974, Paul John breaks into the home of Alice Henrietta Curtis. Alice is a 65-year-old retired school teacher. She was an elementary school teacher who taught in the Catholic school system. She had six children, two of whom were stepchildren, 18 grandchildren, and one great-grandbaby. She was born on April 14, 1909 in Zanesville, Ohio. Paul John breaks into her home because he's looking for money and valuables. Hmm. He jumps her, gags her, and ransacks her home. Hmm. Then he steals her car and drives away. He didn't murder Alice with his own hands, but she eventually choked to death on her own dentures Uh. because he had gagged her. Hmm. Now, nobody knows if Paul John was there when it happened or not, when she actually passed. There is one source who has said that Paul John knew she was dead when he left. He steals her Dodge Dart and drives it away. He'll drive the car for about a week until he realizes the police have connected him to Alice's murder. Mm-hmm. So he decides, I've got to ditch this car. Right. So now it's August 1st, five days after he breaks into Alice's home. He parks the car, and when he's doing this, he's really near his parents' house, and he sees sisters Lillian and Milet Anderson. Okay. Lillian is 11, and Milet is 7. Mm. Now, there are sources that say it isn't definite that Paul John had anything to do with the murder of these two little girls. But according to retired Georgia Bureau of Investigation agent Ronnie Angel, quote, if you told me he killed 100, I could believe that, end quote. Wow. I'm going to present this story as if he did, in fact, murder these two little girls, Lillian and Milet Anderson. All right. According to the Charlie Project, their mother and older sister left them alone at home about 6 p.m. while she went to take care of a sick relative. Their mother called them at 7 p.m. to check in on the children, and everything was normal during the conversation. But when their aunt called later, nobody answered the phone. The girl's father, who was a commercial fisherman, was supposed to arrive home from work at 7, but he was delayed by 20 minutes because of a faulty boat motor. And when he did get home, Lillian and Milet were nowhere to be found. Reports in the Florida Times Union and other sources said that neighbors saw a white car in the driveway of the Anderson home between 6 and 7 p.m., but nobody saw anything suspicious, and no one saw the girls leave. The doors to the house were shut. They weren't locked, but there were no indications of a forced entry. Nothing was missing from the house except a baby doll that Milet owned. The family's small dog, which usually had run of the house, 
we know what that's like. <laughs> yes, we do. Was shut up in a bedroom. <laughs> Milet and Lillian were never heard from again. Hmm. But Paul John is worried because here's what we think happened and what he has told us. Okay. He pulls this car up. He sees these two little girls. They see him in this car and he knows, his mother knows of these two little girls and he knows that these little girls know who he is. Uh, One theory is that he strangles them both and buries their bodies in a swamp just outside of Jacksonville. The case of these two little girls is still open because it's never known definitively if Paul John murdered them, but many believe that he did. Right. Their little bodies will be found five months later in January of 1974 after he confesses to their murders. Uh, he keeps this Dodge Dart and drives away after disposing their bodies. Oh, man. Yeah. Now, on this same day, August 1st, 1974, Imogene Sanders, age 13, is running away from her home in Beaumont, Texas. She's hitchhiking in Warner Robins, Georgia, when Paul John picks her up. He rapes and murders her. Her skeletal remains will be discovered in Peach County, Georgia, in 1976, two years later. She will remain unidentified until December of 2011. Wow. Paul John confessed to murdering a female hitchhiker in this area, and many believe that it was, in fact, Imogene. The next day, August 2nd, 1974, Paul John is in Atlantic Beach, Florida, where 49-year-old Marjorie Howe takes him to her apartment. Now, nobody knows if she invited him in or if he forced his way into her apartment, but he strangled her with her nylon stocking and stole her television set. And when he leaves, he picks up another teenager, a Jane Doe hitchhiker, raping and strangling her just for sport. Jeez. Just because. Wow. On August 23rd, 1974, Paul John forces himself into the home of Kathy Sue Pierce in Muzella, Georgia. Paul John strangles Kathy Sue with a cut telephone cord in her bathroom while her three-year-old son, Joel, watches the whole thing unfold. He leaves the little boy unharmed. Her body will be discovered by a neighbor who often checked on Kathy. She was divorced. Yeah. A week and a half later, on September 3rd, Paul John meets 32-year-old William Bates at a bar, Scott's Inn, in Lima, Ohio. Okay. William worked as an executive for the Ohio Power Company. He was born on April 19, 1942. He married Dorothy Sconce in 1963 and had two sons and a daughter. The bartender who knew William, will later tell authorities that he saw William with a young, handsome redhead and that the two had several drinks together. These two are drinking and they leave together. Paul John strangled William and dumped his naked body in the woods nearby. Hmm. William's wife reports him missing, and this is when the police realize that William's car is also missing. But in the parking lot of the bar is a Dodge Dart. Oh, wow. It's Alice's car, yeah. and William's car is missing. He dumps William's body in the woods, where he will be discovered a month later. He is nude because Paul John stole not only William's money and credit cards and his car, but his clothes. His clothes. Wow. After this, Paul John drives west. He's heading to Sacramento in William's clothes, hmm. in William's car. Wow. And along the way, he calls Angela Kovic again, but she wants nothing to do with him. Hmm. Then on his way to Sacramento, he's driving through Utah and stopping in Eli, Nevada, where he runs into Emmett and Lois Johnson. Emmett and Lois were from San Pedro, California. It's now September 18th, 1974. These two are camping when they meet Paul John. He tied them both up, shot them in the temple, and leaves them in their pickup camper. Lois was nude and under a table when she's found. Emmett was dressed. They were both in their 60s. Paul John stole their credit cards, and he's going to use them for a while. Their bodies are found a week later by a Nevada Highway Department maintainer who was emptying barrels at the Lake Valley Summit rest stop. No one will ever connect Paul John to these murders, not until he confesses to them. Really? Wow. Three days later... Paul John is passing through Seguin, Texas, where he sees a female motorist stranded on the roadside. 
It's 42-year-old Charlyn Hicks. Her motorcycle is broken down on the highway when Paul John stops to assist her. Yeah. I also read that she'd stopped her bike on the side of the road to admire the sunset. Hmm. Anyway, when he shows up on the scene, he rapes and strangles Charlene to death with her own pantyhose. Then he dragged her body through a barbed wire fence where she'd be discovered four days later on September 25th by Deputy Bargfried. Okay. Charlene was married to Bob Hicks, and she lived in Houston. Okay. Now, before Charlene's body has even been found... Paul John meets Beautician Ann Dawson in Birmingham, Alabama. He is all over the place. Yeah. Crisscrossing. He's just all over the place. Wow. He meets Ann Dawson at the CNS Lounge in Pinson, Alabama. Paul John liked her. And for a few days, these two traveled around. And Ann was footing the bill <laughs> until Paul John got antsy and he murdered her on September 29th. Her abandoned car will be found two days later, about five miles from the bar where they meet each other. Paul John threw her body into the Mississippi River, but her remains have never been recovered. Really, The newspapers will report that the man she left the bar with was six feet tall, handsome, with red hair, and that Anne was carrying a large amount of cash in her purse. So she's a beautician- Lots of beauticians, hairstylists, use a lot of cash. Maybe that's what she had. Right. I do know that he was living off of her during that short period of time. Right. Then Paul John drifts from state to state, from Oklahoma to Missouri, then Iowa and Minnesota, seemingly without killing anyone, or at least without leaving any trace of a body behind. He's just driving all over the country. And like I said at the very beginning of the podcast, he's going to drive 20,000 miles over the next four months and go through or stop in 25 different states. But by October 16th, he had the itch to kill again. Mm -hmm. And now he's in Marlboro, Connecticut. Okay. Paul John breaks into the home of Karen Wine and her daughter, Dawn. Karen is a mother of two who was a widow that had remarried a man named Edward Wine Jr. Now, Rob's going to love this. Interestingly enough, Ed Wine will be investigated while Karen is alive for selling Polaris submarine patrol information to the Russians. Oh, my. Wow. Wow. He wasn't a redhead, though. (laughs) He was not a redhead, but the government suspected him of being a Russian spy. Spy. Wow. Mm -hmm. She would later separate from him. Mm -hmm. I believe she left him because of his drinking. But Karen would always say that her husband was not a Russian spy. Mm -hmm. Her daughter, Dawn, was a student at regional Hebron, Andover, and Markborough High School in Hebron, Connecticut. Good grief. (laughs) I know. They called it R-H-A-M High School. What was the mascot? (laughs) (laughs) A schizophrenic octopus. Yeah, probably. She was a happy girl with many friends. She loved biking and riding horses. She worked part-time at a donut shop. There you go. Now, when Paul John breaks into their home, he binds them both, rapes them, and strangled them both with a nylon stocking. Karen and Dawn will be discovered by Karen's oldest daughter, Cheryl, who is 17. She comes home after spending the night with a friend. Wow. He also steals a tape recorder from their house. Really? Because he's going to start confessing into these tapes. Oh, wow. These same tapes that no one's ever going to hear except the grand jury and the judge. Did he ever say why he decided to tape everything? He wanted to live in infamy. He wanted to go down in infamy. He wanted to be famous and he wanted books to be written about him. Yeah. And podcasts. And podcasts to be (laughs) done over him. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Two days later, Paul John is now in Woodford, Virginia. He forces his way into the home of 53-year-old Doris Hovey after knocking on the door, and she answered. He goes through her house and finds Doris's husband's guns. Paul John shot her in the head with her husband's rifle, then wiped his prints from the gun and placed it beside her body. He didn't rob Doris or rape her. He only wanted to kill her. Gee whiz. Now, he's driving William Bates' stolen car, something he's had for about six weeks now. 
but he's traveling from state to state pretty daggone fast. And police didn't share information like stolen cars in 1974. So he's driving William's car and he picks up two hitchhikers in Key West, Florida. But while he has them in the car, he's pulled over for a traffic violation. Okay. Now, I don't know if he was speeding or if he had a headlight out or what, but he's an escaped fugitive with two hitchhikers. He has plans to kill in a stolen car and he's staring at a police officer. Wow. And believe it or not, the officer let him go with a warning. What? Yes. Did he even run the license plate? Let him go with a warning. So he couldn't have run the license plate. Yeah. Yeah. Gee whiz. After this, Paul John was so freaked out that he dropped off the two hitchhikers in Miami. And on October 25th, 1974, he called his attorney, Sheldon Yavitz, looking for advice. <laughs> Sheldon meets up with him in a bar and Paul John says to him, quote, I'm a mass murderer, end wow. quote. Wow. And what do you think Sheldon said to him? Uh, we can get you off. No, he said, come turn yourself in for the love of, the, that's all, it's holy, son, turn yeah. yourself in. Yeah. He meets with his attorney. He turns over this confession, which he's taped, a confession of the murders thus far. Right. Then he slips right on out of town before the police are ever the wiser. Jeez. Paul John says he'd rather be shot down on the run than go through the prison system. Hmm. He had murdered people in several death penalty states. So he knows. His days are few and far between. Yeah, clock's ticking. But he really wants the notoriety. He wants to be famous or infamous. Yeah, infamous is a better word. <laughs> On November 2nd, Paul John picks up two more hitchhikers, Edward Hilliard and Debbie Griffin. Edward and Debbie are hitchhiking to see friends in Love Valley, North Carolina. Okay. They'd left a motel in Commerce, Georgia just that morning. Debbie worked as a waitress and had a four-year-old son with her ex-husband, Earl. Ed was working in Florida doing drywall construction. Ed and Debbie met in 1972 in Michigan, and they're both on probation with the Michigan court system. Debbie for drug possession. I couldn't really find what Ed was in trouble for. Right. Ed's body will be found in the woods near Macon, Georgia. He's shot five times. Wow. Debbie's body has never been found. Mm. However, her purse and clothes were found near Hilliard, Georgia, which is really close to Macon. Okay. Four days later, on November 6th, Paul John meets Carswell Carr at a local bar. Great name. Yeah, Carswell Carr. Carswell <laughs> is married with a daughter, but he's out at the bar that night. Paul John's still in Macon, Georgia. Carswell invites Paul John back to his house to spend the night. Now, that sounds kind of hinky to me. Mm -hmm. I don't know if this was a gay bar. I don't want to say that. It could be, might not be. Yeah. Maybe he was just a really nice guy and inviting him back to the house to spend the night. Yeah. But these two have a couple drinks, and then Paul John stabbed Carswell to death and strangled his 15-year-old daughter, who was uh, also home. Her name was Mandy. Wow. He then tried to have sex with Mandy's corpse, but he failed. Carswell's wife finds them the next morning when she comes home from her night shift as a nurse. And when police arrive, the place is turned upside down. Furniture had been picked up and thrown around, overturned, books picked up and tossed, mirrors and pictures and glass are broken. Wow. And some of the upholstered furniture had been slashed open. Hmm. In the master bedroom, Carswell Carr lay dead on the bed. He's nude with his hands bound behind his back. There was blood all over his body and the bed, as if he'd struggled until the very end. He had been stabbed superficially with scissors multiple times. Jeez. But the medical examiner said that his death had been the result of a heart attack. Hmm. So he's torturing him. He had 27 stab wounds on his body. And Jeez. he's torturing him so much that he has a heart attack. Um, yeah, wow. In the other room down the hall, 15-year-old Mandy had also been bound and left face down, but she had been strangled and a nylon stocking had been forced deep into her throat to asphyxiate her. Huh. The pathologist would spend 15 minutes trying to get it out. Jeez. Another stocking was wrapped around her throat and tightly knotted, and it was evident that someone had tried but failed to rape her. 
Paul John has stolen most of Carswell's clothes, his briefcase, his shaving kit, his credit cards, and the keys to his car. A few days later, Paul John will purchase a tape recorder and blank tapes with Carswell's credit card. He had to get another tape recorder. Wow. More murders, more to confess. Yeah. The clerk will say it was a tall man with red hair and a mustache. He then leaves Macon and heads to Atlanta, Georgia. He's wearing Carswell suits and acting like he's a normal businessman. Then on November 8th, he's out bar hopping and meets a British journalist named Sandy Fox. The name he gives himself, Lester Daryl Golden. <laughs> well, there's a strange name. Lester Golden. I mean, Sounds you, like a porn star. Yeah, I know. If you're going to pick a name, I mean, yeah, I think you could do a little bit better. Lester Golden. Lester. Mm-hmm. Yeah, wow. Sandy had just come from a failed assignment in Washington, D.C. She's kind of licking her wounds. She's tired. She's discouraged. And she sees him at the bar. Quote, decidedly, he really was very handsome. Tall, well over six feet, broad-shouldered, narrow-hipped, and as slender as a wraith. End quote. (laughs) She thought he was hot. And these two go out to dinner, and then they end up in bed. They hook up, or at least they try to hook up, because Paul John can't perform in bed. Really? He repeatedly fails at having sex over the next two days with Sandy. Wow. And she described him as good company, so she stayed with him and allowed him to drive her where she needed to go. Okay. I actually read an account where she said he was pretty good-natured about the fact that he couldn't perform in the bedroom. He They would laugh it off. Mm. He even talked her into allowing him to drive them all the way to Miami, Florida, where he said he had an appointment. She thought he was sensitive, considerate, protective, and was a, quote, spectacular dancer, end quote. Really? Wow. They had a really good time. And she was impressed with his expensive clothes and his new white Chevy Impala. (laughs) She thought he was wealthy. But it was weird to her that he could pay for loads of stuff with a credit card, but he didn't have any cash money for little stuff like a newspaper. Yeah. And these two really kind of had a good time together. And he tells her that he wanted to, quote, leave his mark on life to be remembered for something, end quote. Wow. He told her that he didn't have long to live because he soon would be killed for something he had done. Quote, within a year, I will be dead, end quote. She had no idea whether to believe him or not, but he told her that he had given some tapes to his attorney in Miami for safekeeping, and after his death, the content of those tapes could be revealed. He's very dramatic. Yeah. He tells her that he really believes in fate and that there were marks on his body that he believed proved that he would die young. Okay. Yeah, he's big into astrology and into tarot card readings. Okay. Now, these two part ways on November 10th, and Paul John actually picks up one of Sandy's friends, Susan McKenzie, and her husband the next day, November 11th. Okay. And according to one source, they felt sorry for him. (laughs) And then the next day, he demanded sex from Susan at gunpoint. He tries to rape her. And somehow she escapes him and goes straight to the police. And when they try to stop him, when they try to get to him, he points a sawed-off shotgun in a police officer's face and drives away. Wow. But now, not only are the police on to him, but they know the car he's been driving, a white Impala. Yeah. So he needs another car, right? He makes his way to West Palm Beach, where he breaks into the home of Beverly Maybe posing as an IRS agent. (laughs) Beverly is an invalid with cerebral palsy. Okay. He ties Beverly to the bed and then abducts her twin sister, Barbara, maybe, and steals their car, a beige Volkswagen. Beverly gets out of her ties and calls the police. A picture of him is on TV in the area saying he's armed and dangerous. He drops off the twin sister, Barbara, in Fort Pierce, Florida, the next night. Why he doesn't murder her, nobody knows. Yeah. He tied her to a bed in a motel room. He raped her and left her there. She frees herself and escapes, 
Barbara did write a book about her ordeal. I didn't read it, but I will put a link to that book as well in the show notes. Okay. Now, the police want to talk to Sandy Fox. Remember, he tried to rape her friend. Mm -hmm. So they go to her to find out if she's a part of his crimes. And this is when she discovers that his name is not Lester Golden, Mm. but Paul John Knowles, an escaped rapist and murderer. Can you imagine her first thoughts when she found that out? Uh, Before or after she thought, I'm going to write a Pulitzer Prize winning (laughs) story about this. True. She didn't win a Pulitzer, but I'm just saying, as a journalist, she was probably like, you write what you know, and she'd spent four or five days with a mass killer. I've got a gold mine. Yeah. Yeah. The day after, Paul John is driving in Beverly's car, the new stolen car, the Volkswagen, which had been reported to the police. Sure. And a patrol officer, Trooper Charles Campbell recognizes this Volkswagen as stolen. Right. And he pulls Paul John over. Now, maybe Paul John thought he'd gotten out of a situation like this once before, right? Right. And that's why he just went ahead and pulled the car over. Or maybe his intention was something else. But he pulls his gun on the officer and takes the officer hostage, driving away in the patrol car. Oh, man. Then he uses the siren to stop a motorist to pull over a guy. Wow. A guy named James Meyer, a businessman from Delaware. And he steals that car, a 1974 blue Ford Torino, taking James and the police officer with him as hostages. Wow. This is like a bad uh, movie? movie of the week. Yeah. Yeah. Finally, he stops in Pulaski County, Georgia, where he handcuffs them both to a tree. He then shoots both of them in the head at close range and drives away. Now, by this time, police are hot on his trail. A gas station attendant in Lakeland, Georgia, has ID'd Paul John and has told police which way he was going. Mm -hmm. So they set up roadblocks, including one in Stockbridge, Georgia. Paul John sees it and decides he's going to crash through it but he lost control of the car and crashed into a tree instead. Then he got out of the car and takes off running. This is exactly what Rob ran into the other day when he was out shopping. (laughs) Roadblock, somebody had crashed their car and then took off running, and it was wild. Yeah, yeah, like 30 police cars and people running around through the woods and the ditches, and that was amazing. Tis the season. Yeah, (laughs) So he takes off running. They have helicopters, dogs, officers, other agencies combing the woods and the area around this roadblock. They're searching for Paul John. Inside the car, the police find a gun belt that belonged to Trooper Campbell. But it's not until he happens upon an armed civilian that he's taken into custody. Oh, really? David T. Clark was out hunting when he saw Paul John coming out of the woods carrying a gun. Quote, he could have killed me then and there, end quote. Wow. David said that Paul John was hurt and told him he needed help. David's unarmed when he first happens on Paul John, but he goes back into his house and gets a shotgun and comes back out and points it at Paul John, who says, I just want to surrender. Oh, wow. David Clark didn't have a phone in his house. Really? So he walked across the street with Paul John at gunpoint to a neighbor's house where the Reverend Clifford Bruton called the police. Oh, you can't make this up. Can't make up. this up. Wow. They take him into custody, but he doesn't give them any information about Trooper Campbell or James Meyer. And according to an article by Catherine Ramsland, Paul John saw the media when he's taken into the police station And he is just like flashbulbs. Oh, oh, oh. Like it's his moment. He loves all the attention. Hmm. So he shuts up and doesn't tell police anything about Trooper Campbell or James Meyer. He started playing games, telling the police that one word would provide the right clue for finding them. But he wouldn't give them the one word. So police are out looking for the two men, and they wanted them before it got dark, but it would be three days until they found them. Wow. Not until a couple of hunters found the two of them in this wooded thicket an hour outside of Macon. And the word to help locate them? Pabst. 
there was a brewery nearby. <laughs> PBR. <laughs> yep. Paul John is suspected in 12 murders when they capture him, including the two hitchhikers near Macon. The Cars, the Bates, Curtis, two killings in Jacksonville, and three more in Georgia. At this point, they don't know just how much he's traveled. And he tells police about the tapes he gave to Sheldon, his attorney, which then started a legal battle in which Sheldon is actually cited for contempt because he won't turn over the tapes. Oh, really? That's client attorney privilege. Privilege, right, yeah. Ellis Rubin arrived from New York in support of Sheldon, and Sandy Fox, the journalist, was called to a grand jury. They want to know what Paul John told her. Sheldon spent time in jail before finally agreeing to turn over two packages of documents and tapes. At first, he would only say that while the tapes might have information relevant to the car double homicide, which Paul John was charged, they also provided a record of his activities in jurisdictions across the country. Paul John had given Sheldon instructions that when he died, all the tapes and documents were to be revealed for the world, quote, yeah. for the good of society, end quote. <laughs> well, there's some rational thinking. Sheldon Yavitz will later call Paul John Knowles the, quote, most heinous murderer in history, end quote. You think? I did kind of read that he today really regrets ever getting involved with him. Yeah, I would think so. But like I said earlier, Paul John's all about the media attention and the fame. And he told the press the only thing he would miss when executed would be seeing the police make fools of themselves. In what way? Because he, they couldn't find any of these. He killed these oh. people and they didn't know who and yeah. where. Okay, because he eluded the police. Yes. Whatever. He gave loads of interviews calling himself the, quote, most successful member of my family, end quote. <laughs> There's a pretty low bar. Yeah. The women who had been involved with him also gave interviews, which, along with his good looks, contributed to the moniker, the Casanova Killer. Hmm. On December 13th, 1974, Paul John was scheduled to be transferred to a more secure facility in Henry County, Georgia. Okay. He told Sheriff Earl Lee and Agent Ronnie Angel of the Georgia Bureau of Investigation These two are in the car with him. Mm -hmm. He says, I'll show you where I dumped Charles Campbell, Trooper Charles Campbell's gun, the service revolver that he used to kill both Meyer and Campbell. Okay. He tells him this while they're riding in the car. Right. But also while they're riding in the car, he quietly picks his handcuffs with a bent paper clip. This guy's good. Yeah. Jeez. When he's free... He reached for the gun in the sheriff's holster, causing a struggle. Agent Ron Angel shot at Paul John three times in the chest. Mm. The car careens out of control and crashes during the whole kerfuffle. Wow. Paul John Knowles had told journalist Sandy Fox only 40 days earlier that he was going to die. And some people speculated that it had been an outright execution staged to look like a struggle. But the wrecked car was pretty hard to dispute. Sure. And Paul John was dead. After an investigation, it was ruled a justifiable shooting in self-defense. Okay. Paul John Knowles was buried in Jacksonville, Florida, in attendance at his funeral for his family and Angela Kovic. Really? The woman from the very beginning. Wow. That he was going to go straight for. Hmm. According to Sandy Fox, the minister refused to pray for his soul to rest in peace. (laughs) Now, Paul John's a unique serial killer and that he doesn't kill his victims in the same way. Mm -hmm. Sometimes he raped them. Sometimes he robbed them. Sometimes he just killed for sport. He strangled and he used a gun to kill his victims. So Paul John is more of a spree killer than a serial killer. Okay. Because he was sometimes killing for money or a car and sometimes raping, sometimes not, you know. Right. But it was a self-fulfilling prophecy, you know? Yeah. He was told that bad things, he was a bad person, something bad was going to happen to him. He was evil by Angela Kovic. Sure. 
So was it a self-fulfilling prophecy? What if he hadn't been told that he was going to die or that he was a bad egg? Yeah. Because he's a bad person for sure. But when he meets Angela Kovic, he wants to go on the straight and narrow. Right. So which one is it? Is he just a bad guy? I'm going to go with the bad guy. Because he was bad when he was really young. Yeah. Didn't have a good upbringing. But at one point, he really did want to go straight. And then after she says, no, my psychic has told me you're evil. Yeah. He became the most evil version of himself. Because up to that point, he'd only been burglarizing and stealing. He'd never killed anybody. But it's uh, for someone just to automatically say, okay, well, I guess I am evil. I'm going to go kill people. I mean, that's, yeah. I think he's a bad person. Bad guy. Yeah. But that is the story of the redheaded Casanova, Paul John Knowles. And that's all I have to say about that. Hey, Hitch to Homicide listeners. The wait is over. If you're a reader or a fan of my Sex and Lies series, Book 10, Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll is now available on Amazon. With a successful tour and two years of sobriety under his belt, rock star Noah Hart is ready to put his secrets and the past behind him. That is, until his former bandmates and business partners are murdered one by one, and suddenly he becomes the prime suspect. When FBI agent Louisa Hathaway is assigned to the case, no one, including her partner, is aware she carries her own secrets, including an undeniable infatuation with rock and roll's bad boy, Noah Hart. As the body count rises, Agent Hathaway is torn between unraveling the truth and falling for the man who might be the killer. Don't miss this new book, Sex, Lies, and Rock and Roll, by me, Chris Calvert. Only on Amazon. Rock and roll will never die, but it might kill you. Well, Paul John Knowles giving redheads a bad name everywhere. They called him PJK sometimes. Paul John Knowles. Wow. And I did read that the journalist, Sandy, actually said that he was so handsome, he was a cross between Ryan O'Neal and Robert Redford. Yeah, as most redheads are. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen his picture. Maybe it's just because I know he's a horrible killer in person. Yeah. I don't think he looks like it. Yeah. But apparently he was very charming. Wow. Especially when he was driving other people's nice cars and wearing their nice clothes. Well, let me rest assured because uh, redheads are the smallest population on the face of the earth. You are, but do you know that there are more redheads in the United States than anywhere else? Even in Ireland? Even more than Ireland really? and London, wow. Scotland. Yeah. Wow. Well, okay. Well, I'm proud to be a part more of More here. More in the United States. Proud to be a part of that fraternity sorority. I like my redhead. I'll keep my redhead. Thank you very much. All right. Well, I'm, I'm here to stay. <laughs> All right. Well, let's do a little bless your heart. All right, I'm going to start this number one with give thanks where thanks is due. Give thanks. Yes. All right, police had no idea who carried out a cinematic Valentine's Day heist at a Queen's Payomatic because the thieves were dressed as cops and wearing high-quality Hollywood masks that made them look like policemen. Oh. Yeah. But the crooks were, eh, they were such happy customers that they gave themselves away. How'd they do that? Well, the investigators tracked the disguise to a prop shop. Oh. Who in turn turned over emails from the alleged robbers. (laughs) This is what one of the emails said. I'm sending this message to say I'm extremely pleased by CFX Works, that's the shop, the work on the mask. The realism of the mask is unbelievable. Oh, gosh. And, of course, when they turned them over, they were foiled by their niceness because the cops went and, and, and arrested them. Right in a thank you note. But I am going to add this. I'm sure their mom would be very proud that they were that polite. She's proud all the way <laughs> yeah. from jail. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Number two, no matter what the situation, practice good hygiene. <laughs> yes. Yes. Always practice good hygiene. Yes. In Wilkes Bar, Pennsylvania, <laughs> yes. a man on a bench warrant was stopped by an officer, but then violently pulled away from the officer. He then took out a can of aerosol deodorant from his pocket and attempted to spray it at the officer. <laughs> 
This led to a struggle between the two, which ended with the officer tasing and arresting Richard Lewis Pruden, who was 38, who was also found to be in possession of 27 packaged bags of a suspected crack cocaine. Wow. <laughs> don't tase me, bro. Yeah, I don't know which is worse, the uh, the 27 packages or the, the fact that he had an aerosol deodorant can. I just hope he didn't have his mouth open when he like spraying <laughs> oh him. <laughs> All right, number three, doggone it. Doggone. Yeah, in University Place, Washington State, a sheriff's deputy helped arrest 14 suspects by imitating a police dog. <laughs> Wait, what? <laughs> yeah. The teens were being chased in a stolen car. The cops deployed a spike strip, which flattened all four tires. Okay. They ditched the car and ran off into a wooded area. Okay. Searching the woods, Deputy Jason Smith was able to track the teens <gasps> down to a creek bed. He gave orders for the kids to come up, but they didn't. He threatened to send a canine down to get them. <laughs> Then he barked like a dog. It worked. Only by, yeah, one by one, the teens started walking out with their hands up, only to realize that there was no canine, just a barking deputy. Uh, bark like a dog. Yeah. But this wasn't the first time Smith pulled a stunt. He once got a female suspect to come out of a house by barking and using a rake to scratch the door as if it were a canine. <gasps> He must have a really good bark. <laughs> That's the first thing I thought of. I'm like, I want to hear this bark. That's a really good bark. If he has that realistic of a bark, that's yeah. pretty good. Yeah, he needs to be in Vegas. <laughs> in Vegas? Yeah, doing a stage show. Oh, my it. gosh. Anyway, so there's your there's your bless your hearts. Lord have mercy. Help I them. Know, I know. Bless their hearts. Yep. Well, if you have a bless your heart or you know somebody's heart who needs blessing, or somebody who's using an aerosol can as a weapon. That's <laughs> the best. Go to Hitch to Homicide where there's a pull-down menu. You can also suggest a case while you're there. You can. We're so glad you joined us again this yep. week. That's my amazing husband out there. And that's my beautiful bride in the booth. Join us next time on Hitch to Homicide. <laughs> Bye, y'all. <laughs>